This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to Literary Treks. It's your destiny to be here. This is episode number 289, and this is the official Star Trek books and comics podcast of the Trek FM Network. I am Bruce Gibson, and with me, as he always is, because it's his destiny to be here, Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Um, fulfilling my destiny already in my life. That's it's kind of cool. So it's just like from here on out, you know, I've done it, right? Like from here on out, it's just I can do whatever I want. I did my destiny. You did your destiny. Which reminds me, that's what we're going to talk about here on the feature today. It's Destiny Book 3, Lost Souls. And it's written by author David Mack. And David Mack will be joining us to talk about not just book three, but that whole trilogy that we so love. If you've listened to the last two episodes, everyone knows that we are going nuts for this trilogy. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And I mean, what a crazy random happenstance that our des- it, it's our destiny to be here. And we're talking about destiny. And David Mack just happens to be coming on the show. And he just happened to have written this. What a weird random coincidence. It is. It's like some weird collateral damage, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Is it possible we've stretched the uh, metaphor too far? We have. We have. We have. (laughs) Oh, well. But yeah, he was just here just a couple episodes ago talking about collateral damage. And I have a feeling that might come up in the conversation. At least I hope it does, because that book does tie into this trilogy, even though there's, what, a decade apart from the publishing of these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny, all these threads that run through all of the modern Treklet that continue to come up and, and resonate through the years. And we'll, we'll be careful not to spoil collateral damage while we're talking about it, but there are some links that I think we should bring in. Definitely. Ooh, that's going to be hard, but we'll, yeah, we'll try not to spoil that. So, <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, guess what? We have some feedback in the Babel conference, and this is for our episode about book one of Destiny, Gods of Night. And this is from episode number 287. And let's jump into the comments. And the first comment I want to read is from our guest co-host, 
from that episode, Matt Rushing. He says, thanks for having me back for this. Truly was a joy to talk with y'all. And I said to him, it was great having you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It was a lot of fun having you back on the show for sure. Well, Christopher Baca says, I really liked the Destiny trilogy and really, you know, succinctly and in few words, summing up the thoughts and feelings of many people, judging by the number of likes that the comment got. Yeah, there isn't anything more you need to say, just that you really like the Destiny trilogy. That's saying it right there. That's just saying it right there. (laughs) Jeffrey Harlan says, I love the German covers. And one of the reasons he mentioned that is because that is the show artwork that we used for the episode was actually from book one of the German cover. And I posted a picture of Nicole DeBoer that was from some random studio shot or something. And it's the same pose or profile of her that was used in the cover. And I was like, hmm, I wonder where they got the image of Esri from. And that's where it was. (laughs) Well, Jeff Craig says, Trilogy is hands down one of my favorite arcs in Trek. David Mack really nailed it. And again, yeah, getting a lot of praise for this trilogy. I I get the feeling that a lot of people really like these books. And the next comment here is from Andrea Valintova. And she says, "Uh, here in Czech Republic, this trilogy was published just recently. I read it this spring. Late, but all three books were published at once, I think. So I bought them all and read them at one time. As the previous books leading up to the trilogy were not published here, you go to the story pretty much head on, but I didn't feel like I was lacking something. Overall, I liked Destiny, although the over-the-top destruction of the Borg was eye-rolling. Most interesting parts were the alien culture, their technology, and I also liked that it explained how the Borg came to be. Definitely. Um, great comment. And, uh, yeah, I, some of the over the top destruction, I guess that could be eye rolling, but, uh, overall, I, I definitely agree with much of what you said here for sure. David Plummer says, I was really looking forward to this one. I blasted through the trilogy for the first time this past week after you mentioned you'd be covering it. Fortunately, there's an affordable collected edition on Kindle. I had a lot of the same thoughts. Some I'll leave till the later books, but I had two main issues with this one. Deanna's story didn't quite hit right for me either. It feels like one of those topics that's so rough and personal that it doesn't quite gel with the larger science fiction action-y setting Star Trek typically goes for. The other problem was the Borg. Even beyond showing up a million times, this portrayal really leans into what's bugged me about how they developed. I found them more interesting and scarier early on when they were just a dispassionate force. They lost something to me when they got a face and a vendetta against the Federation. But I guess I can't blame the author for where the franchise went, and he does take it to some great places later. I refuse to rate this book on its own, since it doesn't end so much as lead right into the second book. But even with my gripes, I'll say it was great, and a strong recommend. Thank you very much for that comment. I'm glad we got somebody who is reading these for the first time. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, it's great to think that somebody's reading it for the first time as we're reviewing it. So that's really cool. And Kimberly Lawler says, great episode. Nice to have Matt Rushing and songs for this one, too. And very exciting to hear that David Mack should be here for the third episode. Oh, yes, he is. One insight I like was that the family stories in this novel with Picard and Crusher, Riker and Troy, Tom Paris and his father, Katahata and her family really serve to highlight what is at stake with with the Borg invasion. This is also a contrast to the Kaliar deciding to sterilize the Columbia crew or separate them from non-compatibility 
before it all blew up. For me, the Enterprise and the Titan storylines were the least favorites, not because I was tired of those characters and more interested in the new, less familiar ones, but because, in quotes, I cared so much. TNG is my favorite show. These four main characters in particular are ones I always invested in the most, and I love their arcs in the novels. So seeing them go through very trying times with miscarriage, past trauma, and so forth is difficult because I care about them. I'm glad it all redeemed in the end. I give this one 4.5 out of 5 condescending Kaliar faces only because the next two are rated even higher. Well, awesome. Thank you for that, Kimberly. Jeff Lubin says, did anyone catch in chapter 15 when Martok is rallying the Klingon High Council that he paraphrases Shakespeare's St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V? That made me happy. No doubt a favorite portion in the original Klingon. (laughs) That's awesome. I actually had to go back and look at that. And sure enough, that is awesome. I I love that. Kapla. And Michael Oudcroft says, if anyone would like to read, I wrote my own ideas of what the DS9 crew were up to during the Borg invasion, all woven around Ezri's storyline from the books. And Malcolm provides a link in that post. So if you go to the post on the Babel conference, you can click on his link if you want to read his Destiny Season 12 story at ds9continuing.com. So thanks everyone for all your comments and I hope you enjoy the feature that's coming up because I think you will. And I know I'm definitely looking forward to it. Well, you're not the only one in that case. (laughs) Well, as promised everyone, we have the author of the destiny trilogy with us today, David Mack. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Always love having you on the show. And it's actually hasn't been long since you've been on the show and it's been nothing but David Mac books since then. So, uh, we're definitely, I think we call this the month of Mac. So, uh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, I feel honored. Thank you. <laughs> you should, you should, it's your destiny. Okay. I mean, not just because it's obvious, but because it veers dangerously close to star Wars. Luke, <laughs> it is your destiny. Hmm. <laughs> That's right. But no, we're not talking Star Wars. So we're all going to talk about destiny. So, you know, we covered book one on a previous episode. Then we covered book two. Now we're in book three. But, I mean, we're just not going to focus on book three because we have you here. We want to talk about the whole trilogy. And, and we'll focus a little more on three as Absolutely. we go along. But so there's just so much I want to ask. I know Dan's the same way. It's like, how did you even come about with the genesis of this story was it there's some directive for a big epic end to the borg or was this something that you came up with or i mean how did we even get to this place well it is a story i have told many times before but i'll tell it again it all started of course with the image of the nxo2 columbia crashed in the desert on some unnamed world in the gamma quadrant in the book ships of the line And uh, apparently this image intrigued fans to the point where many of them wrote emails to the editors at Pocket asking if this had been featured in a book or in a comic, where was it derived from, was there going to be any follow-up to it? And so in November of 2006, I was taken out to lunch by two of the Star Trek editors, Marco Palmieri and Margaret Clark, who showed me the image and they said, Working from this as your starting point, could you write for us an epic Star Trek trilogy that crosses over multiple series and gives us a big sales event 
for end of 2008. Because at that time, that was when they thought the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek film was going to be released. It was scheduled at that time for theatrical release in December of 08. It was only while we were working on this project that the film got moved to May 2009 uh, for its theatrical release. Or maybe later, summer 2009. Um, <clears throat> so... Of course, not being a fool, I look at the image and I go, yes, of course I can do that. And I go away and I came back with multiple different approaches to the story material. And the first few ideas just were deemed not epic enough, not big enough, not compelling enough. And so I went and we went round and round because this is a hard enough task to come up with a compelling trilogy idea when you're dealing with one editor. So they were asking for a trilogy, not just a single book. Yes. They approached me with that image from Ships of the Line uh-huh. and asked me to develop from that, using that as the touchstone to develop an awesome epic trilogy. But other than that, my directive was open-ended. I had no specific request for story. Uh, I was only told, for instance, try to stick mostly to the 24th century characters and I could incorporate the Enterprise era if I wanted but because of the fact that they thought the new J.J. Abrams film was coming out uh, in end of two, uh, 2008, that's why I was asked not to include TOS or anything uh-huh. TOS era. I was asked to skip over that. And the reason that there's really nothing from Voyager uh, or very little from Voyager and very little from DS9, that was also at the request of the editors. They said uh, basically Marco was sort of – he wanted DS9 – relaunch books to move at their own pace, tell their own narrative. And he didn't want to rush through them uh, or accelerate their pace or artificially or arbitrarily skip over large passages of time and narrative just to bring them into temporal sync with the TNG books, with the Voyager books, with the destiny trilogy project. So, and the same thing, and the same thing, give you a pass on that then. Okay. And the same thing was at work on Voyager because, uh, Kirsten Beyer was working at her own pace and had her plans for the Voyager books and the Voyager characters and the Voyager fleet, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I was very limited as to how much use I could make of the Voyager itself, how much I could use its crew. Uh, there was the fact that just a couple of books prior, in Before Dishonor, Peter David had killed off Janeway. Uh, so I had a whole lot of things sort of piled on my plate as restrictions as to what I could and could not use, which toys were going to be allowed. And I had to make the best of what I had, which was the next-gen relaunch with Picard and uh, XO Wharf on the Enterprise. I had the Titan. Uh, I had 22nd century characters, probably the Columbia, since they were going to be the genesis of the whole storyline. And then beyond that, I was told, you know, well, you can have, you know, Voyager for a scene. They should be involved, but don't show too much of it. Don't tie Kirsten's hands. Give her lots of latitude, lots of leeway to reinterpret the event from her side. And then I was told hands off most of DS9, but I begged and I pleaded uh, which is part of how we got the opening scene of the trilogy, the prologue of book one with the DS9 crew from the run of the show. And then I was told I would be allowed to use Esri and a couple of the secondary literary original characters developed for the DS9 relaunch, uh, characters such as Bowers, let's say. And I was basically told, you know, that's it. That's what you got. That's what you work with. 
But they didn't ask you specifically for a Borg story, no. right? No, that okay. hap- that came about because after several go rounds of stories that were deemed not big enough, not epic enough, uh, I eventually said, "Well, let's talk about this in the context of what you're doing with the publishing line. Tell me, like, what you've got coming out right now. What do you have already in the pipeline for next year, for 2007?" let me see where you're going. Let me see what your thought process is. Let's see if there's an organic path we can follow that builds on where the line seems to be going. And at that point, what they had already got in the pipeline, they'd done uh, the death and winter storyline with Friedman in 05 in, uh, you know, around that period, they had done resistance with JM Dillard, which is a Borg story. And they were already uh, talking with Peter David about doing before dishonor. Uh, which was going to be Borg-oriented and was going to kill off Janeway, and that was something done at the direction of Margaret Clark, uh, the editor in charge of the TNG line at that time. So uh, I said, all right, it seems like you guys have brought the Borg out of retirement. They'd sort of been you know, off the, uh, you know, off the radar for a while because of Voyager, the Voyager finale had smashed all the transwarp pubs, leaving the Borg sort of stranded in their corner of the galaxy and we're back in ours. So the fighters are back in neutral corners and, uh, that seemed like where they were going to leave it. But I'm like, but you guys have just broken that. You've got the Borg back in play. So you've unleashed the 800 pound gorilla. So do you want Epic? That's Epic. I said, you've put this back on the table. I said, you want Epic? Here it is. It is the clash of civilizations. Two civilizations enter, but only one can leave. How about that? And they went, oh, that's interesting, but how do you see it playing out? And then, of course, we had to argue over that concept for months and just, you know, multiple different attempts to say, well, we could go this way, we could go that way. And they said, what's the resolution to the story? The, the biggest challenge turned out not even to be, let's say, navigating a complex uh, overlapping time travel story with multiple overlapping, uh, you know, arcs happening in different centuries and different planets. That turned out to be relatively easy. The trick was, how do you resolve a story of this magnitude, have it still feel epic, and yet not betray the very ethos of Star Trek? Because the biggest problem we had with the early proposals was trying to find cool techno-babble, technology-oriented solutions that would allow us to defeat the Borg. And then finally, after sort of ruminating on it, that was when I hit upon the revelation, something I had actually been saying for some time but hadn't really thought about how to apply in a story which is that the Borg drones really don't deserve to die. In in a respect, they're basically slaves. Some have been enslaved since birth. Some have been recently pressed into slavery. But a truly just solution to the problem of the Borg is not to defeat the Borg through force of arms, but to liberate the Borg drones from the collective and try to help the collective find a more benign state of being, one that doesn't... uh, basically take away individual liberty. And that was the challenge. Like once I proposed that to the editors as this is what the series has to be about, they were like, okay, now it's figured out. And that's where the Kaliar came into play. And eventually you have the Kaliar who are this very pacifistic race. They're very aloof, they're very arrogant, but they're also very stagnant. They are, whether they realize it or not, they are a civilization doomed to decline. 
They are not going to really advance. They are in denial about this. And the solution of the story, spoiler alert for the end of the trilogy, the whole point of the ending was not just to save the Borg, let's say. It's not just a story of deliverance for the Borg. It is also a story of deliverance for the Federation. Uh, and it's a story of renewal for the Kaliar. The whole idea is that because of the intervention of our characters, uh, particularly the Enterprise crew, the Titan crew, the Aventine crew, and Captain Hernandez, they act as these intercessors, you might say, who uh, help get the Kaliar to take responsibility for their own faults, their own mistakes as a culture. And by embracing them and putting them together with the Borg, they are able to heal the Borg, liberate the drones, they set free the oppressed, they end the war, they save their own civilization, but in the course of doing so, they also save the Borg, who were essentially on an untenable path, and they save the galaxy from the Borg, and they save the Kaliar from themselves by reuniting them with the lost children. So the whole thing is a story about forgiveness, it's about the power of ideas, it's about the very Star Trek idea that it is better to create than to destroy, it is better to heal than to harm, it is better to forgive than to bear a grudge. Which is very brilliant because, you know, when you think if you're going to write a story that is going to rid of the Borg forever, you would assume it is destroying the Borg, as opposed to, like you're saying, you're liberating the Borg, which meant that to liberate them and tie in the, the Kaliar, you had to go to the origin of the Borg. Exactly. So that was the thing that really kind of pushed the pitch over the top was that once I realized if you're going to have the ending, the conclusion of the story is going to be about the Omega point of the Borg, then for symmetry, for, for the sake of narrative symmetry, you need to show the alpha point. Where did it begin? How does it end? And why are the two related? And what's the role we play? Uh, and this plays a little bit fast and loose. I mean, there's obviously contradictory bits of uh, history. Some of it uh, in Star Trek canon supports this theory. Some of it doesn't. We can just wipe, you know, chalk that all up to wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Um, the Borg were clearly messing around with uh, time travel in uh, First Contact. So if you think about that and the fact that, well, you know, they clearly are not above meddling with timelines. Uh, maybe they're not real good at it because that takes a certain amount of imagination, which the Borg have never been known for. They assimilate. They don't innovate. Um, but if they have ever meddled with this kind of tech before, that could explain away some of our canon discrepancies. But yeah, once I added that to the pitch, that we're going to see the origin of the Borg and that it ties into humanity, which is why they've been so damn fixated on us ever since they made contact with us in uh, Q-Who, that's the point where the editors were like, all right, now we've got something. Let's see the full outline and you know, see yeah. where the whole thing goes. And that, that took a while because I had to graph it out. I have all the parallel storylines written out as timelines and graphs. And I have flow charts showing the passage of time travel. And this arrow goes from this year to that year and yada, 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 yada. yada. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was how it all happened. It started with a very open-ended solicitation and months of work and revision and rejection of saying, not good enough, try again, eventually brought me and the editors to the storyline that you see in the books. 
And then CBS licensing was good with that and they said run with it or did they have any issues with any of these ideas? Not really. I mean, uh, the only feedback we got at that time, uh, the licensing approvals were still being handled by Paula Block. Um, and the only note we got back from Paula on the full trilogy outline, which is something like a 70-page document, the full trilogy outline, her only comment that came back to the editors was, are you really sure you want to do this? <laughs> And the editor said, yep, we believe in the story. We think it's worth doing. We know it's going to massively alter the status quo, but we've already started doing that to a lesser degree. This was going to be the part, part of the other impetus behind this was to radically alter the status quo of the Star Trek literary continuity and have it stick so that readers would know from that point forward, we're not messing around anymore. The reset button is gone characters' lives are going to move forward, fortunes are going to change. When things happen, you can take it seriously. It's not all just going to get forgotten by the time the next book comes out next month. This is going to be something that is going to carry forward and is going to have lasting repercussions on all of the literary books, not just the ones written by Mac, not just the ones in this particular subseries, but by joining them all together and having nods to the Star Trek Corps of Engineers, to Voyager, to DS9, to Enterprise. Uh, there's even a line, I think, somewhere in book two when President Bacco is trying to wrangle the Federation's rivals into the Alliance. And the Tholians say, we have not forgotten the crimes of the Taurus Reach. Right. That's an allusion to Vanguard. Uh, so it's like I'm tying in all of like, you know, the ongoing literary stuff. I've got the, you know, a joke reference in there somewhere to Calhoun and the Excalibur crew doing something remarkable somewhere. So it, it all gets referenced. And the message that sends to the readers, hopefully, is it is one big shared Star Trek literary universe. The consequences will be shared. The literary fallout will be shared. It's all part of a cohesive whole, and there is a guiding principle behind it. Trust us, we know what we're doing. And I mean, I remember being a reader of the books back when this first came out and just being gobsmacked that, well, I mean, you know, Janeway had been killed a couple books earlier, but I was still kind of in the back of my mind, oh, they'll bring her back somehow pretty soon. But this one, you know, the Borg are ended and completely transformed into a, a new thing. And that just floored me as a reader. So mission accomplished there for sure. It was a pretty heavy duty bit of writing to do. It was a very emotional undertaking on a lot of levels. Uh, and especially, you know, I have like, you know, the soundtrack in my head. I have the music I was listening to that like I can tell you sometimes which specific track of music inspired which exact moment in the book. Um, and there's some really great music that inspired the transformation of the Borg at the end of book three. I'll tell you that. Well, oh, very cool. Yeah. Now, how long did it take you to write the trilogy then? About 21 months. If you count uh, the time that was spent in development, uh, developing story outlines. Uh, I mean, I've got the, I'd, I'd have to go back and dig it up, but I think at one point I figured out the entire time from when I was approached, I was approached in November of 06 and the book started coming out in October of 08. Um, and I think I finished writing the last one, uh, book three, which came out in December of 08. I think that got turned in in March or April of 08. The others were done significantly ahead of it. 
Um, each book took about three, maybe four months to write individually. So uh, maybe a little longer, maybe even five months. So yeah, uh, I was spending a good 12 to 15 months uh, just on the three manuscripts and I wrote them all back to back. Part of the production process on something like this is that because we wanted it to be a big event, uh, we didn't want fans to have to wait a year between books. Uh, we didn't want to lose the momentum of reader excitement. And we also just didn't want to create that level of anger of fans going, you ended a book there and we got to wait a year. Are you crazy? <laughs> All right. uh, no, we wanted a sales event. We wanted to just dominate for three months in a row. Uh, but that required starting two years out having time to plan it, I had to get the entire storyline approved for the entire trilogy, all three books. I had to be able to show the entire narrative shape of the entire trilogy start to finish and how it would all fit together and where all the cliffhanger points were, et cetera, et cetera. And then the editors had to sell that to CBS. And so that took a lot of time. It was the prep phase. It's like cooking a great meal. A lot of time is spent in the prep and then there's the actual execution and then you put it in the oven, which is copy editing and production and art design and layout and whatever. And you wait to see what comes out the other end and you hope it tastes good. Yeah. Cause there's a whole lot in here of padding and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in that you spend so much time, not just on these major storylines, but there's all these character storylines and character moments with our main cast members or main crew members. And then these literary created characters that have been created for the Titan and the enterprise E and such. Mm -hmm. There's so much in there that there's actually some downtime that we can spend on these B storylines. I mean, I can imagine you had tons of arrows pointing everywhere on a board somewhere. Oh yeah. I mean, it was all drawn out graphs and circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what each one was to be used as evidence against me. But, um, it wasn't so much intended to be padding, but the point of a story like this, when you're telling an epic on this scale, it's not just enough to show the big battles. In many ways, the big battles are the least interesting part of it. Um, they often happen at a remove. There's something impersonal about them. And you can only get so much grandeur on the page. I mean, it'd be one thing if I was writing it for the screen and you knew tons of money was going to be going into a lavish special effects spectacle of a space battle, whatever. But in that respect, because the nature of a prose narrative fiction is to be internal, to experience the story from within the point of view and perspective of your characters, it's those personal moments, the small moments between the battles, between the moments of crisis. That's what makes it matter. It's the, it's the human quotient in the story that makes the story matter. It's little things like, and I just, I have this fresh in my mind because I heard you guys mention it in your uh, discussion of book one, but it would have been there anyway. In book one, Tom Paris learning about the death of his father. After we've seen Paris, you know, in a base that's being blown to pieces around him, he is scrambling against time to get a message out. And you think he's trying to get some great tactical message out and it turns out it's not some emergency message to Starfleet Command. He's just trying to get a message to his son before it all goes to hell. And then as you know, Tom gets the message and he has to hear the, the dying message of his father. 
and Tom at that point is shattered. And that's what it's all about is that it's not just about the large scale, which planet burned, uh, which moon got destroyed, how many ships are here. In the end, what makes it matter is do we care about the people that tragedy is happening to? So I tried to bring it all down to the human level with Miranda Katahata, who was the operations officer on the enterprise for her. The terror is because of needs of operational security. She can't, really warn her family, even if she thinks their planet is going to be one of the next to get hit, she's not supposed to send them a warning. She risks her career, and spoiler alert for future books, this eventually does cost her her career. She breaks OPSEC to send a covert warning to her husband to to, to get the kids and get off the planet, to mm-hmm. run before it's too late. Um with Jasminder Chowdhury, who's the security chief on the Enterprise, she's got a storyline going with Worf where she's dealing with the fact that, you know, her family uh, is going to be, you know, in harm's way. And eventually they get blown up on uh, when Deneva gets hit. Um, and so she's sort of dealing with that loss. Um, you've got all sorts of little moments like that. And then when you've also got piled on top of that are the family issues that are now plaguing in at the same time, you've got Picard and Beverly who had married, I think in greater than the sum, uh, which was like the book that immediately preceded this. They're now because of the magic of 24th century science, despite the fact they're both middle-aged, they're expecting a child. They've, you know, worked some medical magic and Beverly is carrying Picard's son. Uh, and the moment like you know, within days or weeks of their conception, the Borg reappear and start laying waste to their entire civilization, planet by planet, system by system. And now you've got poor Picard is feeling like the, you know, the main character, the narrator of the rhyme of the ancient Mariner, where he feels like he's committed one selfish act in this whole life of selfless service. He does one selfish thing for himself. He starts a family, the thing he had told himself he would never do starts a family. And what happens the very, it's like the very next day, the Borg come back and start destroying everything that he loves, everything he's been you know, sworn to protect. He feels like he's being punished for an act of hubris. He's being punished by the gods almost. And then the flip side of this is you've got poor Deanna Troy and Riker are going through the hell of coping with miscarriage, uh, which is a brutally painful thing. Uh, some of it is drawn from personal experience. Some of it is drawn from research, but it is a gruesome, uh, you know, emotionally terrible thing to go through. It destroys marriages all the time. Um, and I basically, you know, said, you know, again, this is the sort of thing where what are we fighting for? If we're not fighting for our families, our right to exist, our right to continue to procreate, we're, uh, we're fighting for hope. And in a way that's what Troy is doing, even though she's been told, you know, your, your current pregnancy is not going to be viable. It's going to fail within a matter of days. We should end it now. And she refuses. She's not going to terminate it early. She basically is fighting for hope the way every character to one degree or another in this story is fighting to hang on to hope. Well, speaking of, of these character moments, Captain Picard in particular was one that, you know, I really wanted to focus on a little bit. Uh, because, yeah, what he's going through here is enough to break any normal human being, I would say, uh, based on his past experience with the Borg and the kind of 
you know, what he's putting on his own shoulders as, you know, whether logically or not, you know, the reason that his civilization is going through this. Um, I'm thinking of like, you know, Riker and the other people around Picard kind of noticing that he isn't like his old self. And I was wondering if we might talk a little bit about how the Borg have damaged that part of him. And is this is this a big enough crisis for him that it's destroying his decision-making process as a captain in this story? I think it's definitely impairing him. Uh, he's clearly dealing with uh, a long-term PTSD situation, a post-traumatic stress disorder, despite the fact that he's gone through therapy and, you know, you had the whole episode family, yada, yada, yada. You're not going to get over something as invasive as the sort of, body and mind hijacking that he went through and being used to murder 11,000 Starfleet personnel at wall three, five, nine as locutus of Borg back in uh, best of both worlds. Part two, that's not something you get ever really get over. That's something he's going to carry with him for a very long time. And of course they established that he hears the whispers of the Borg collective in his head back in uh, first contact. And you even saw this in first contact it was clear that once Picard starts dealing with the Borg, once they get in his face, once he's hearing the voice in his head, he is no longer calm, cool, collected, rational Jean-Luc Picard. He starts becoming hothead, uh, you know, let's charge right at the problem. Uh, he becomes a line must be drawn here and no further Picard. This man does not stay rational when it comes to this particular topic. Now, add on top of that, he's just conceived a child, and the Borg are not just sending one cube. This isn't like a single encounter. This is the beginning of the end, and he can feel it and he can hear it. They're not coming to mess with us. This isn't a single strike. This is not, you know, everything before this, the, the episodes uh, that you saw the Borg in Next Generation, uh, what we saw of them in First Contact, all of that, those were all incidents. Those were all encounters. This is the invasion. This is the thing that he has feared from the very beginning. This is the day he prayed would never come. Uh, this is Theoden, you know, at Helm's Deep saying, how did it come to this? So would you say if you're looking at the movies, like you're saying from first contact on, and then even the novels that followed that, do you think we've, we kind of got away from what Picard really was and that the incidence of the Borg is the reason why Picard isn't quite the Picard we knew from TNG. And this is the way to bring him back to the old Picard is by saying all these events have happened, have affected him greatly to the point that he even gave himself up to the Borg and resistance to be Lucutus again, which is kind of crazy. And just to say, like, you know, he's kind of off his rocker because of these incidences. If we can get rid of the Borg, we can get our old Picard back. I'm not really sure how to answer that, uh, except to say that. Obviously, he does have this lingering issue with them, and part of what I had hoped would come about uh, in this book is that you find out Picard is not going to be the guy who solves it. He plays a role. He has a part to play in the conclusion, but he is not the final agent of change. Um, as he sort of says at the end of book three, you know, we merely bear witness to history, but I think that's enough. 
he got to he got to be there and he got to be liberated uh, at the point where Erica basically serves as, you know, the, the Christ figure who redeems the Borg and sets them free. She says she frees him and she frees seven of nine at the same time. And Picard really isn't the hero of the story. I mean, no, if anybody, not. you know, it's like Hernandez and, and, and Esri Dax. It's I mean, they're all the ones. Yeah. The whole trilogy is actually Erica's story. Mm-hmm. It's about her. I love that as, as, you know, as someone who reads these Star Trek novels and it's always, you know, our big heroes at the center of everything. And, you know, love Picard and I love the Enterprise crew and all that stuff. But I think rereading it this time put that into focus more than the first time that this really was Erica Hernandez's story and uh, the, the kind of journey that she takes throughout these three books is, you know, she's such a huge part of this story. Um, I think one of my favorite revelations, of course, is that deception that she maintains with the Kaliar, that she's become so adept that she's even hidden from them her the true extent of her powers. And then, of course, like we've been talking about her role in those final moments of the Borg. And I was just kind of wondering, what was it like for you writing the character? What was it about her that kind of drew you to craft this story around her? Well, I mean, it was partly the fact that she was uh, in the position to be the leader of the Columbia crew. She'd been established on Enterprise. So I was starting from this is what I have to work with. But the more I wrote the character, the more I established about her, the more I developed the relationships between her and the other members of her crew. Um, and then especially between her and Inix, the Kaliar, who is most responsible for her transformation. Uh, the more I just came to love this character. And then as I was developing the story, it became very clear to me, especially as I was finishing the outline and uh, for book three and sort of figuring out what the imagery was going to be and how the mechanics of the whole thing were going to work. Um, I've just, I really sort of fell in love with the notion of, you know, this is a, a classic deliverance story. This is essentially uh, the story of a female Christ who comes to the Borg and uh, basically saves their souls. I mean, look at the title of book three, lost souls. Mm -hmm. It applies to the, uh, you know, members of the NXO two crew who, uh, and also the Kaliar who got stranded on, uh, I believe it's called Morak mall. I think might be the planet or it's something like that. There's some frozen ass planet. Uh, they, they get stranded on this frozen-ass planet. Well, they're lost souls, but also so are the trillions of drones who have been lost to the collective. But in a way, so are the Kaliar. They're lost because they've lost their way. They've lost their spark. They've lost what it is that gives them the ability to change, to grow, to evolve, and they need to get it back. And our characters do play a role in persuading Erica, persuading the Kaliar, uh, and just basically keeping the spark of hope alive. But in a way, the role that is played by our series regulars is essentially to get the people who are in a position to do something to take the necessary action before it's too late. And this is a formula that Star Trek has used many times. They've used it in the episodes. They've used it in some of the movies. Um, so it's not like I was just pulling this out of thin air and Star Trek's never done it before. But I just I love the notion of Erica as this figure who goes through 
She's just trying to get her crew home and do right by her crew. That all goes to hell. So now she's living in exile, her and a few other women, and sort of writing about their relationships and their friendships. uh, And basically through her sort of confronting what would it be like to face first mortality and the loss of all your friends and, again, the loss of hope. I mean, part of what they're trying to do is keep hope alive. And they're failing by degrees as they lose Sidra, as they, uh, you know, lose Metzger, um, you know, to suicide, as, as you know, uh, Veronica Fletcher finally passes away and refuses help. She's turning away hope. Um, so I, I sort of love the notion that first uh, Erica has to confront mortality and come to terms with that. And then she's got to face the prospect of immortality and realize, what have I done? Um, I, I sort of like, there's, there's a beautiful music cue. Uh, in fact, it's the title music cue from the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, is what I was listening to. And that's the background music in my head for the transformation hmm. of Erica uh, in around the middle or late into the middle of book two, when she is basically rejuvenated and imbued with uh, Kaylee Arcadams. Um, and she basically, you know, has this moment where if you read the book and you read the imagery and the description of how she ascends out of the lab through the skylight, through the storm, she's being wreathed in lightning. And then she breaks through the top of the storm into bright sunlight, arms spread wide. Well, picture that in your head. She's basically just struck Christ pose. Mm-hmm. That's Christ on the cross. And then if you look at the language being used at the end of book three, when she's transforming the Borg, uh, you know, it's the lines about death shall have no dominion. That's right out of the New Testament. I mean, I was basically making very clear literary allusions to the King James Bible uh, when I was writing that section. So I guess uh, I just, you know, it was uh, an idea whose time I felt had come. It's amazing to me because when you think of the assignment of, hey, write this trilogy, make it epic, tie all these series together, and then it concludes with, well, the hero of all this is Erica Hernandez, people would scratch their head like, really? Of all the characters? It's it's this one, <laughs> right? Well, you know, that that's the curveball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just makes sense because it also gives you a lot of freedom because she's not that well of a developed a character. We only had her in a couple episodes of Enterprise. Well, you know, it's an interesting, uh, you know, interesting parallel to this. I could use as an example, the movie uh, Mad Max Fury Road. A lot of people get confused because they say, well, you know, Max was not the hero of his own movie. It's like, well, no, but he was the main character, main character and hero and protagonist are not necessarily the same thing. The protagonist is the character who acts to put a character, put a story into motion. That's the person whose action instigates dramatic conflict. The hero is supposedly the person you're going to root for, the one who either makes the sacrifice, makes the difference, or fights the good fight. The main character is the person through whom you are experiencing the story, the person who's providing context, point of view, perspective, and in many cases is the person who is changed by the experience. If you look at Mad Max Fury Road, protagonist and hero are one and the same. That's Furiosa. Furiosa is the one who acts to put the story into motion. She is clearly the hero. She is not the main character. Our point of view character, our perspective on the whole thing is Max. And in the end, it is Max who is transformed at the end. He basically 
is called back to himself. He basically accepts the call to action that Furiosa puts out to him, and he embraces his own inner nature to do the right thing. And at the end, he walks away because he realizes this isn't my story. At that moment, when the women are being lifted up on the you know, the big elevator at the end of Fury Road, you know that's the moment of apotheosis, the moment of elevation, the moment of glory. And he starts out on stage, but before it ascends, he steps off. And Furioso looks down, and he's slipping away into the crowd. It's because he realizes, this is not my story. This is not my moment. That glory doesn't belong to me, and I don't belong there. That's their moment. This is their victory. I played a part. I've learned something, and I've reclaimed my dignity as a human being. But I don't belong there. This is a similar structure to what Destiny has, which is that our Furiosa is Erica Hernandez. Our main characters are people like Picard and Riker and Worf. They are our perspective on the story, especially Esri and Picard. And you see this in that the change that is wrought in Picard, he is basically succumbing to fear when he's trying to embrace the Thaleron weapon because he can't see any other way out. He's going to go for a weapon of ultimate destruction that, should it misfire, could have collateral damage that could just wipe out entire populated star systems. I mean, he he's playing with fire here. This is the weapon Data died to destroy. Data died to stop the proliferation of this technology. And Picard is so scared by the end of book three, he's prepared to let this freaking genie out of the bottle again. And it takes LaForge to say, Data died to stop this. I will not be part of this. You can do this, but you'll do it without me. And that's basically the Picard low moment, the point where he realizes that he has sacrificed ethics. He has, he's, he's willing to burn down the sacrifice of his, uh, you know, his friend Data. He's willing to throw away pretty much everything that he has said he stood for in the name of having just one more hard punch to throw when it's really probably not going to be enough or make a difference. Compare and contrast this to the way the people of Earth when they're informed that the Borg cube is coming, Earth doesn't devolve into riots. It's not chaos in the streets. It isn't bedlam. It's candlelight vigils. It's music. It's some people gather for final meals. The president throws a last supper in the uh, Roth dining room at the Palais de la Concorde. This is a civilization that has learned if you're going to go out, go out with some dignity. Die the way you've lived. Die as a human being, not as an animal in the street. And this is what Picard has forgotten, and it's what he has to be reminded of. And it is when Hernandez redeems the Borg and brings them back to the Kaliar and frees people like Seven of Nine and Picard, who have been sort of the lasting collateral damage connected to the Borg, but not of it. It's all encapsulated in his final lines. I mean, that's why Picard gets the last lines of the trilogy, which is, you know, I hope that uh, our son will be born healthy. I hope he'll grow up in a galaxy of peace. I'll hope. That's why that's the last line of the book. I'll hope. I love that you you brought up that kind of uh, comparison between hope and fear, and uh, especially that last bit with the you know the people of the Federation um, deciding to go out with incredible dignity and grace 
and contrasting that with the fact that fear motivates so much of what goes wrong in these books. I mean, we can go back to the origin of the Borg, the fear of Sedin and, and the mm-hmm. Mako and the, you know, the Columbia crew. And of course, like you said, Picard's decisions and that sort of thing. Um, I was kind of wondering in particular about that part with Earth. Was there kind of a temptation to have that be more of kind of a riotous thing or was were you always going to show this kind of remarkable stoicism of the people of Earth in the face of Armageddon? Because I, I truly think that's one of the most beautiful parts of the book. That was a decision I made when I was writing the outline. I got to that part of the story and I had to ask myself, well, how would it play out? Do I go for the the scenes of chaos and bedlam and terror? Do I try to play that angle or do I go another way? And I thought to myself, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like Star Trek. It doesn't feel like the hard-won, mature humanity that Roddenberry has told us we should strive to be. And in fact, what's interesting, and part of what uh, inspired that choice for me personally, is that I thought back to how people behaved in New York City. In August of 2003, there was a massive uh, power failure. Uh, The entire city of New York got blacked out and some parts of the surrounding area, about 20 million people in all were affected. And it lasted for quite some time, lasted for uh, a a few days minimum. And you'd have thought, you know, I mean, people think about New York City in a blackout. They think 1977, 1978, something like that. The great New York City blackout, I think it was summer of 77. And there supposedly there was rioting and there was crime in the streets and this and that and the other thing. But that was also just New York in the, in the late 70s. New York in 2003, the power went out, the city went dark. You know what happened? I'll tell you, I lived in Hell's Kitchen in the middle of Manhattan at that time. What happened was people went out into the streets. They set up barbecues and flashlights and they had battery powered radios and some people had instruments. Because, you know, air conditioning failed, so people basically went out onto rooftops. They went out on sidewalks. They congregated. They met their neighbors. They cooked food on hibachis and grills. They got, uh, you know, they found charcoal. They found scrap wood down by the railroad tracks. And they cooked out, and they fed their neighbors. And they watched over each other. And the cops patrolled the streets, and everything was quiet. There was no rioting. There was no panic. There was no looting. If somebody got hurt, neighbors ran to their aid. If there was a problem, people pitched in to help. People fed each other, took care of each other. They played music. There was no panic. I'm like, people are sometimes better than you give them credit for. Everybody wants to say the moment the lights go out, we turn back into animals. You know what? No, we don't. No, we don't. We have a choice and you can choose to be better than that. And what I saw on that night in 2003 in New York City was 8 million New Yorkers said, we're going to be better than that. We're going to be calm. We're going to be cool. We're going to take care of each other. We're going to watch over each other. We're going to have a cookout. We're going to get the cold beer out while it's still cold. Everybody, come on up. Have a drink. Have a hot dog. And that was what I saw. So I said, all right, you know what? That was the vision I wanted for the future. I'm like, yeah, that was the night that I lived through here in New York. And it was beautiful. People went out on the rooftops. There was no light pollution. You could saw, you could see the stars. People were gathered on rooftops and handing each other their binoculars across from one roof to another saying, Hey, look at the stars through my binoculars. And I'm like, 
that is the future I want. That's the future I want to see. That's the earth that's going to see the board coming and go, well, you know, we had a good run. There's nowhere to run. The ships are all gone. We can't run. So, you know what? If I'm going to die, I'm going to die a human being. I'm not going to die an animal on the street. I'm right here. Come and get me. Yeah. If I were going to write a story where the Borg are about to attack Earth, my my first instinct would be that everybody's in a panic and everybody's trying to get off the planet and it's just total chaos. But when I read what you put in this, and I, of course, I don't know, I didn't know that the New York outage had a uh, bearing on this perspective for you to put this in here, but it felt more real to me because it did feel real. Like, you know, when, when all hope is gone and there's no way out of it, I don't think people would panic like that. You just kind of know it's coming and you just make the best of it and you just live the rest of that, those final moments yeah. with each other. Yeah, in fact, uh, somebody did a uh, an experiment, like in a simulated video game environment, where they had a few hundred, you know, thousand users or whatever, or maybe like a few thousand users who had signed up, told they were going to do a beta test on this uh, open world, massive multiplayer online role playing game. Some scientists said, "Well, let's uh, do a test," uh, because they found that people tend to behave in these games very much the way they're likely to behave in real life. People who are ethical behave ethically, and people who aren't don't so they said let's just do a test you know with the random sampling of people who are signed up for this so what they told these people who had thought that their personas their profiles in the beta version would be rolled into the regular version they were told we're very sorry but for reasons related to the servers we're not going to be able to roll over your profiles to the main game you'll have credit you'll be able to create new profiles and start over but as of this hour this minute on this day this beta version is going to shut down. Uh, the profiles of characters you've built are going to be lost and erased. Uh, we're very sorry, uh, but we hope you'll enjoy it until then. And you think, well, you know, once there's nothing left to lose, people are going to go berserk. Uh, they're just going to go on killing sprees. Uh, it'll be mayhem, chaos, dogs and cats, you know, living in the streets, French and English, living together. But <laughs> But no, uh, what happened was, is that the behavior they saw, once these players had been told your fictional universe is all going to be erased and there's nothing any of you can do about it and you can't escape, what they saw was a marked decrease in questing behavior. Basically, people said, well, why bother to continue to work? But what they noticed was a massive increase in social behavior, group gatherings, people communicating through the chat functions, people creating connections, hoping to say, hey, maybe we'll see each other again on the next platform, which sounds very much like I'll see you in the next life. Mm -hmm. That's what they saw. People told the end was inevitable and unavoidable and was coming for everybody together. Nobody went berserk. I mean, a few, there were a few antisocial dickheads who did, but you know, they were dealt with the way you'd normally deal with them. But they didn't represent any kind of major change in the overall social quotient what they actually saw was an increase in social connection people wanting to connect with each other before it ended that's what they saw you saw a decreased work ethic sure but what you didn't see was chaos that's very cool (laughs) I, i i guess contrasting that because i do want to go back a little bit and talk about um the origin of the borg and and these novels 
the structure of them with each new story in this trilogy, I really like how, you know, we kind of go back and examine something that happened in the past that's affecting the future. And each of these novels kind of does that and, and explains something and shows how things got to the way they are. And this final novel does that with the Borg itself and shows their creation from the, the Kaliar of Mantalus and the Columbia crew who have crashed on this uh, frozen ass planet <laughs> that we talked about earlier. And in that case, it's kind of contrasting what we've been talking about here born out of that fear, that deep fear that seems to pervade uh, some parts of this novel and, and again, leading to all the, the bad things that happen, basically. What ultimately led to that corruption that gave rise to the collective in Sidine? Because we, we met her earlier and, you know, she seems well-adjusted. She's a little bit scared of, of the humans coming to uh, the planet, but at the same time, you know, it, it's she seems like a normal Kaliar. What what ended up happening there? Sedin's original sin is jealousy. What Sedin was not prepared to admit or at least act upon was the fact that Sedin felt jealously possessive of Inix. Mm -hmm. And the moment it became clear that Inix had a deep and abiding fascination specifically for Hernandez and that there was clearly an emotional component to his attachment to Hernandez. This led to jealousy and bitterness on the part of Sedin uh, and led to them having a falling out, which could not be reconciled. So for Sedin, it starts with jealousy. That's her original sin. And then what happens is once the uh, city ship of Mentelis crashes on Arihaz in its uh, northern polar region up in the Arctic, What's wrong now is that they've lost access to the Omega particle generator. So the Kaliar have no way of replenishing the power of their catoms. Solar power, especially at a northern latitude, is just not going to get the job done. So they know they're on borrowed time. And that consolidation, as they put it, which sounds a lot like assimilation, um, sacrificing the weakest in order to serve the strongest. Uh, there's a couple of different strategies you can use, but really, a strategy like consolidation tends to favor the strongest. The strongest will prey on the weakest to get the maximum possible longevity and therefore, again, preserve hope of eventual rescue or salvation of some kind. By the same token, you've got the Mako survivors and the Columbia survivors now thrown together. You've got poor Thayer with her maimed foot. You've got uh, Cricklow and you've got all the others who are part of that whole mess. And now they're trying to survive in the Arctic they got no food, they're wounded, they're sick, they're stranded, they don't know where they are. They know they don't want to throw in with the Kaliar, but where else are they supposed to go? They're not going to survive long on their own, especially when they realize that as bad as it is, this is summer and winter's coming. Uh, so it's only going to get worse. Um, so that was basically, in a lot of ways, the storyline that takes place back in like, what is it, I think it's 4,527 BC, so like 6,000 years in the past, it's a horror story. It's about cannibalism. It's about uh, not being able to survive against nature. It's about basically the Arctic is symbolic of the implacability of death. 
that inevitably death will come for us all. There is no escape. Uh, there is no sucker. There is no release. There is no uh, compassion in it. There is no mercy to be found in it. Um, and that is what these characters are dealing with, which, which is how they basically end up by the end of that story arc. If you read the description, they basically read like The Walking Dead. They read like zombies. Mm-hmm. And it's only made worse. I mean, it's zombies plus cannibalism. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, basically, you know, it's, you've got this sort of undead thing. And that's where, you know, I, I sort of have my, and I realize this was a little bit self-indulgent, but you, know, you have my little moment where, the character as he is absorbed, not wanting to become a cyborg and his thought gets cut off in mid uh, point. So that at the point where he's assimilated, the first word of the new assimilated being is Borg. And that's how that becomes. That's why the human word that is related to cyborg becomes the name of the Borg. What was that? Just a freaking coincidence. Where the <laughs> hell did that come from? So this is my attempt to retcon that and at least put a, at least passingly, possibly minutely plausible explanation to that and to justify it by showing how it came about in a moment of extremis. And I like how that line was written in the book, how it's the, the thought was a line and it said, sigh instead of just, you know, dot, 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 it, it, it goes, Borg. it goes M dash break a line M dash Borg. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it stands out just that one word on its own line, Borg. And I do have to say like years later, reading that again like it just that flashed in my brain when i first read it and imprinted itself so you know self-indulgent like you say i maybe i guess but man did that ever resonate with me like that stuck with me all these years that chilling oh my god moment you know yeah that's the moment where like all the low strings like the cellos basically come in on, (laughs) on on the soundtrack you know well, and there's the part of us, and Dan and I have talked about this before. I mean, we like the Borg, but, you know, there's only so much you can do with the Borg. And after so many Borg stories, you start to get bored of Borg. Sure. And now this, I wasn't bored with Borg at all. And if anything, then when you end the Borg, it's kind of relief even to us that, you know, okay, we're done with the Borg. We don't have to keep revisiting these over and over again. Did you have a kind of sense of relief too that, you know, hey, I'm not going to have to write Borg stories after this anymore? Yeah. The, well, there was that, but I think it was also a matter of, I felt like a bit of pressure that if I'm going to do this, I've got to make sure I get it right on every level because I am taking away from my fellow Star Trek authors one of the all-time greatest toys in the Star Trek toy box. I'm basically taking it, I'm breaking it, I'm putting it back together in a different way, and I'm saying, and none of you ever get to play with it again. And I'm hoping that you won't kill me for that. (laughs) So, yeah, it was a a, a bit of stress, but there was a bit of relief. I mean, part of what I wanted to do was sort of like what we did in SCE when I wrote Wildfire. My mandate from my editor was give death back its teeth kill a major character and have it stick no reset button no mercy end in tragedy i was like all right you got it boss coming up that's sort of what we were doing here what i was told was make us fear the borg again make them a terror make them something a force of nature you can't bargain with them you can't reason they're terminators pretty much through and through except that there's trillions of the damn things and not only that, I took some of the you know ideas that Peter David had put forth 
in uh, Before Dishonor and then some of the stuff that Christopher L. Bennett had expounded, uh, expanded in his book Greater Than the Sum. And I made the Borg cubes themselves part of what you have to fight. Like if you're inside, it's not just a static environment anymore like it was on TNG. The Borg adapt. They evolve. And if the only way to adapt, if you're out of drones, then you need to make the ship itself into the weapon. The ship Which makes total sense. It makes a lot of sense. All right. So the queen, so the queen herself has to yeah. take control of the ship. And, uh, you know, I, I just came up with the notion of, well, the Borgs themselves are completely packed with these nanites. Why wouldn't the ship be too? Mm -hmm. What happens when the ship goes berserk and suddenly you've got walls that move, you've got floors that eat you cables that come out of nowhere, like snakes and start strangling people and ripping off limbs. It's like, it's a goddamn horror show. It's like something out of Clive Barker in there. And that's exactly what I wanted. Essentially part of the feeling I was going for was Clive Barker meets aliens. Hmm. Yeah, it's that yeah. Fun, you know, the notion that the enemy can come at you from any direction. It looks like your environment. In some cases, it is your environment. And then once it strikes, it's just literally a horror show. It's blood. It's guts. It's being ground up in gears. It's being pulled into the machine. Uh, it's basically being surrounded by death on all sides. It's being told that the route you took in doesn't exist anymore. You're in a labyrinth that's always changing. That's terror. That's the sort of shit that just scares people on a fundamental, visceral level. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to get back to with the Borg. I wanted to make the Borg into the thing you pray you never encounter. And and that's one of the things that I just absolutely love about this is they are a force of nature again. And I mean, the queen is in this. She has a presence, but she's not you know, vamping for our characters and, and you know, being this singular entity, you know, she's just the head of the wave of this force of nature that is descending on the Federation and it just never stops. You know, there's no, there's no pause to outline your plan like a Bond villain. It just keeps coming and coming and coming relentlessly. And, and yeah, the, the anxiety level of reading those passages in this book, just they ramp right up. That's great stuff. Yeah, I think my favorite, one of my favorite bits with the Borg Queen was the moment the Borg Queen realizes that Hernandez has linked into the Borg Collective via the vinculum on the captured Borg ship and realizes that Hernandez is posing as a second queen, sparking... Uh, a battle which among insects or specifically bees is known as supersedure, hmm. which is essentially a battle for supremacy between two queens to control a hive. And uh, that's sparks one of the, what I love about that confrontation is that Hernandez goes in all confident and then realizes, as I think I wrote in the text, she had underestimated the Borg queen. This was something more ancient and more cruel than she could possibly have anticipated. And the Borg Queen just on a, uh, a psychic level just decimates her, just mm -hmm. crush, just crushes her. Uh, that was a fun sequence to write. I mean, you're, th this trilogy is very brutal. I mean, there's a lot of brutal scenes in here, and the Herosian fights and all oh, these. Yeah. I mean, just <laughs> it's just crazy brutal. And it's just is this the trilogy that gave you the reputation of? You like to kill characters. <laughs> uh, I, I got the nickname Angel of Death because of Wildfire. That was my oh. that was my first novel for Star Trek. It was written in two parts. It's a put them together. It's a short novel, about forty to fifty thousand words. Um, 
But I mean, that was installments 23 and 24 of a monthly ebook series. And at that point, you know, folks had been reading Starfleet Corps of Engineers for closing in on two years, reading two years of monthly lighthearted tech oriented uh, Star Trek space adventures. And I come along, you know, and I'd co-written installments seven and eight with Keith DeCandido, a piece called Invincible, uh, which was loosely based on the true story of the Lions of Savo. But that's a whole nother story. Um, but I wrote Wildfire and uh, long story short, half the crew ends up killed by the midpoint by the end of uh, part one. Uh, the captain loses his hand. Uh, other characters wind up maimed. Uh, and then at the end, one of the main characters of the series, the basically the male lead um, and romantic interest of the main character, Sonia Gomez, goes to his death. He basically does the Star Trek thing of going on the suicide mission to save the ship, except this time it is a suicide mission. He does die. And just to make sure it's stuck, we bring back the body and we have the moment where they're trying to save him on the deck. They're trying to resuscitate him in the shuttle bay as they're ripping him out of the you know jury rig pressure suit or whatever. And Sonia Gomez has to watch as they fail to resuscitate him. So now, not only, he's not just lost. He's not coming back in some future episode because of some weird techno thing, some wormhole opened up or whatever. No, she gets to see the dead body on the deck. Mm. And it ends in tragedy. And because of that, killing off half the crew. Oh, and the entire ship, because it's happening in uh, the superheated atmosphere of a gas giant, which is basically like super hot liquid metal once you get deep enough. The ship basically gets beaten to crap. It has to be towed out of there. It's basically been scoured down to space frame. There's almost nothing left. The ship is gutted. Half the crew is dead. The captain is maimed. Uh, they, they, the, the next four books in the series, the next four novellas, uh, were collectively known as Aftermath, and they were basically about the crew uh, while the ship is being rebuilt in space. It's about the crew basically coming to grips with what ha has freaking happened to them. I can uh, tell you're probably having way too much fun writing those. <laughs> that was, that was actually my first outing. That was my first time ever writing narrative prose on my, you're own. like the captain Lorca of star Trek authors. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now the Kaylee are, so, I mean, you're not just all about brutal scenes and stuff because the Kaylee are very peaceful. They're like the anti-Borg. They're sure. the opposite of Borg. I mean, if anything, they don't want anybody to lose their life. They're they're willing to give their lives up for others. They'll, they'll, save others. they'll give up millions of their own to save the people who are their guests or prisoners, depending on how you want to phrase it. But uh, yeah, the Kaylee are, are interesting in that they, they're very much isolationist, but they're also pacifist. And it's interesting watching how they negotiate these two ideologies when they come into conflict, when the need to preserve isolationism uh, gets basically put into conflict with their desire to remain pacifist and not take life. That's how you end up with millions of Kaliar dead to save five humans who happen to be aboard the ship at the time. Uh, it's little things like that. Um, but also, you I mean, beyond the, the death and the destruction. So again, some of my favorite moments in the destiny trilogy come near the end. Uh, or even there's a, I think a bit in the middle, like after Deneva has been destroyed and 
Jasmine der Chowdhury is talking to Worf about how she has this memory of planting this tree with her father. And she's thinking about the fact that this tree has probably been burned to ashes and it's, you know, making her basically fall apart emotionally. And Worf, very, you know, calm, uh, introspective, you know, strong presence at this point, he has to be the one to point out to her, you are not mourning the tree. You are mourning the memory of your father. Yes. And it's like, bam. And like, suddenly it hits her like, you know, a hurricane and she breaks down, but thankfully she has Worf. And there's a scene in the uh, epilogue at the end of book three. One of the scenes is they go back to Deneva and they plant a tree together. It's a, a, a little moment, but it matters. And a, mm-hmm. one of the ways I structured the uh, scenes at the uh, end of the book, in the final chapter, those final few moments, the first one is the heaviest. It's the darkest. It's uh, Tuvok in the wreckage of Deneva, uh, basically unable to move past his fury at the death of his son. And he's saying, I see no logic in this. To, uh, he says to his wife, my son is dead. Mm-hmm. And then the next scene is, um, I think, Worf and Chowdhury planting the tree, which is still sad. And then you've got, I think the next scene is, you've got the, uh, the, the Columbia being towed home at long last and sort of being returned to its rightful place back in, in, in earth space dock or whatever, where it's going to be restored, maybe put into a museum or something. The next scene is Katahata coming home uh, to Cestus three and coming home. It's mother comes home to her family. It's the soldier comes home after war scene. And then the final scene is the, the dinner and farewell between uh, you've got Riker and Troy, you've got Esri, uh, you've got Picard and Crusher, and it's the Picard, you know, all hope moment. I structured these ending scenes in the order I did so that it feels like the oppressive weight of the story is lifted off of you by degrees with each one. I start with the heaviest, Tuvok with his rage and grief that has nowhere to go. Then we have the grief, which is at least being expressed by Chowdhury, and she's got Worf for comfort. Then we have the return of the ship, which is lighter, but maybe a little less personal. Then we have the very personal mother returns from war to her family and her children. And then we have Picard, I've been released from grief. I've been released from dread. I, I am once again free to hope. So the idea is these five scenes in this order should feel like the weight of the story is lifted off of you, making it possible to breathe again. And it did. I mean, it definitely mm-hmm. felt that way to me. I mean, even just that last scene that you're talking about with Riker and Troy and, and Beverly and Jean-Luc, it's just, you know, they're both, it, it, here are people that have been together for such a long time. And these two couples took forever to get together. And now they're together and this weight has been lifted off of them and they're both producing new life. Yep. I mean, it's just like a whole new chapter to these characters going forward. And even just Will sitting there with Picard and calling him Jean-Luc. It's that friendship. It's no longer that captain and first officer. Or even surrogate father-son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're friends now. They're equals. Yeah. And so it felt like it was, like you said, this this weight being lifted off, but also starting a new chapter for these characters in a positive note. Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously there was a lot of cleanup work to do in the uh, in local space after all of that, and 
but one of the fun things was that after the Destiny trilogy, that was the springboard from which the entire uh, Trek lit line basically jumped off again. Uh, everything basically converged into Destiny, and then everything proceeded out from Destiny, and it basically you know serves as sort of the narrative linchpin of the shared continuity at this point. So that kind of leads into a topic that I put in here, which was kind of the legacy of Destiny. Uh, and as you say, it's it's had a huge impact on the world of Treklet. There's kind of the pre-Destiny and the post-Destiny books. And we talked a little bit about, you know, taking the Borg off the table going mm -hmm. forward and uh, how this uh, impacts all the stories afterwards. So how do you see the lasting impact that this story has had? And why do you think that it has such staying power and people keep coming back to this as, like you say, the linchpin of Treklet going forward? I think it helps that it's a very easy concept to explain to people. They say, what is the Destiny trilogy? And people say, it's the end-all, be-all showdown between the Federation and the Borg. And you find the Alpha and the Omega of the Borg. Uh, I've heard somebody else describe it as, uh, in that regard, it's the Lord of the Rings of Star Trek. Ooh, it, you know, like it, is, <laughs> it is the civilization brought to the brink, um, and it's where you find out what all your heroes are really made of. And everybody, you know, leaves it, they, everybody leaves everything on the field, uh, and at the end of it, it stands for Star Trek values. And I think the fact that it's got a very catchy title, Star Trek Destiny, helps. Uh, the fact that it's got Picard's face on the omnibus edition definitely helps. He, his face tends to help sell books. Um, the simplicity of explaining it's the big final showdown with the Borg. People like the Borg, and especially when they're told final, you know, there's a conclusion. You get an answer. You get answers. You get a story that is finished when it's done. People tend to like that. Um, and beyond that, I think it was just the audacity of it. The fact that I you know dared to propose this, that the editors dared to approve it, that licensing dared to let us even attempt it. I think that on some level, the readers appreciated the fact that we basically put ourselves out there to say, we're not going to do another reset button story. Uh, we're not going to do another, you know, yes, this was great, but now we have to put all the toys back in the box. So none of this ever really happened, but wasn't it a great uh, little side adventure? No, we said this is the shape of their lives and this is how their lives have been altered and this is who they're going to be going forward. And then we're going to respect that. I think that more than anything is what has helped the trilogy resonate with readers now for about 11 years. Um, it continues to sell very well. Uh, it continues to be very popular, um, even though it's mostly at this point only available in ebook format. Um, it's sadly out of print. The few print copies you're likely to find online are print on demand versions, which are grotesquely overpriced. Um, so at this point it's pretty much just surviving as an ebook. I, I have asked my publisher many times to put out a hardcover uh, collected edition and they just won't do it. Or even just to reprint the trade paperback omnibus and they won't do it. And I don't know why, but. That's too bad because it's uh, when that when that trade paperback omnibus came out, like I 
my friends who like Star Trek, I had Christmas sorted that year. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Well, the omnibus, I, I always tell people to get the omnibus version anyway, because A, it's more affordable than buying all three books individually. And second, when we put together the omnibus edition, I did a re-edit. I went in and I cleaned up uh, some of the sentences. I cleaned up some stuff. Um, I polished a few descriptions. I only made one significant alteration, but I don't tell people what it is. But if people can, anyone ever says, is this the change you made from from version one to version two? And if they get it right, I'll tell them, but I'm not going to tell them even where to look for it. Oh, hmm. okay. Hmm. Interesting. Now I have to get the omnibus. Hmm. <laughs> I don't have that. I gave all mine away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you need to go see some of your friends, Dan, exactly. and say, can I borrow that? <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting, David, because when we had you on a few episodes ago, we were talking about collateral damage and you touch upon the Nossigan homeworld mm-hmm. uh, in that as a result of what happens in destiny. So now as I'm reading or rereading this trilogy, Knowing what happens in collateral damage, I kept waiting for any reference to the Nossigan homeworld, and it was briefly mentioned. And and Dan and I were talking about this before that Baco even says, you know, in her speech, we're going to go back and help these worlds, and we didn't. We didn't. Mm-hmm. She get, get paid lip service, but in the end, it was like, well, there's nobody there, and there's no way we can fix it. And I guess we'll move on. Um, and they just didn't wait around long enough to see if anybody came home. And then once I started encountering Noskins elsewhere, it was like, well, you know, it's too late now. What, is, what are we going to do? Uh-huh. But it's like, well, you could have done something. You could have done more than nothing. Uh, but it's very hard to reach out to, you know, refugees who are stateless, who have no government to represent them, who have no ambassadors. Uh, they have nothing. I mean, they're essentially, you know, at that point, Noskins have been sort of reduced to a state like the Romani in Europe, where they're basically itinerant. They're wanderers. They don't live in a fixed place. They move from one place to another. And as such, they uh, become easy scapegoats. You can blame them for things. Uh, you know, you can blame crime on them. Uh, but you don't have to take them seriously because they don't have a political entity to represent them. They're mm-hmm. stateless. And that's what it is to be stateless is you have no representation, you have no recourse, you have no protection. Yeah. So the events of Destiny continue on even into the more current novels that just continues. Yeah. And it's one of those things where we didn't even think that far ahead when we were writing it. It was just write the story, get it done, and, you know, tell the story that's happening in the moment. It wasn't until, you know, years later, or or even, I should say, months later, as other writers had to step in and start writing the follow-up books, uh, such as William Leisner's Losing the Peace, where the other Trek writers and the editors started asking the question of, well, how do you clean up you know, after a mass like this? How do you pick up the pieces? How do you rebuild a civilization? Uh, when we created the Typhon Pack miniseries as a sequel, as a follow-up to this, that came out of the fact that a number of the rivals who Baco tries to coerce into alliance uh, for the blockade at the Azure Nebula, they eventually say, you know, we could join together. We just don't need to do it under their flag. We could join together for our own reasons. And, you know, just as the Federation has teamed up now with the Klingons and has turned the Cli- you know, the Cardassians into a client state now that they've beaten them in the Dominion War, well, they create sort of a little economic trifecta. 
and they're pushing the rest of us around. Well, you know, if the six of us get together, the Zenkathy, the Romulans, the Breen, the Gorn, um, uh, and a couple of others, uh, the, anyway, they say if we get together, they can't push us around anymore. Now we have economic clout. Essentially, they became the Warsaw Pact to the sort of NATO uh, alliance that uh, the Federation had formed with some of its other neighbors. And so that, again, is, is the sort of repercussions of, you know, what comes out of a calamity like this as the as local space begins to reorganize, as it rebuilds, as, it, as people realign themselves, political alliances change, power shifts, uh, you know, suddenly people's needs change, you know, places that were resource rich have now become resource scarce. And then the biggest thing of all that Kirsten Beyer then got to deal with was once the Borg vanish off the map and leave the galaxy with the Kaliar, and are now gone to dimensions unknown, this leaves a massive power vacuum in the Delta Quadrant. The Delta Quadrant is now completely politically and militarily destabilized. It had lived for eons under the thumb of the Borg, and to a lesser degree, the Herogen. Now the Borg are off the map. This is like taking away the one bacteria that was dominating uh, you know, uh, an ecosphere. It's now been wiped out by a particular brand of penicillin, well, that means all the other brands of bacteria are now free to proliferate and run amok. And this is what Voyager goes into is to say what's happening in the Delta Quadrant now that the one preeminent power that ruled it is gone. And that's where you get chaos. Oh my gosh. Yes. And those books are so good too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I especially love that Kirsten took a scene that I wrote as a throwaway, I think in book two, uh, the Children of the Storm, and she mm-hmm. got a whole book out of The Children of the Storm. And I, yes. thought, and I thought what she did was great. Was that like, is still one of my favorite all-time Star Trek novels. What she did with that was incredible. I, mean, I, I, I wrote it to be one scary sort of throwaway scene, you know, mysterious and unexplained. You know, just one of those, this is one of those scary things you encounter when you jump through portals in the middle of the galaxy. And she just took that ball and ran with it. And yeah. And when I got to that part, again, in my reread, when I got to that, of course, I don't remember that from the first time, but it totally stood out to me this time. I was like, wait a second, this connects to Void- the Voyager novels. Oh, my yep. gosh. Like, my brain just exploded right there. That's, but yeah, I mean, that, that's what I've loved about working on the Star Trek books over the last uh, 16, 17 years is the fact that we have built on each other's work. Uh, we have built on each other's ideas. We have inspired each other. Uh, giving each other new directions to explore uh, every story you tell rather than using up the story potential of the universe only seems to expand the story potential of the universe because then every story you tell seems to have five or six lingering dramatic questions of, well, then what becomes of that? And how does that person respond to that? And what's going to be the aftermath of that? Where could that go? And as such, we just seem to continue to inspire each other in new directions. So what what stories do you have coming up? What new things are you working on? Absolutely nothing. Oh, come on. No, I'm uh, I, I'm done. I've got uh, a Star Trek book on the schedule for next year, but I wrote it 10 years ago. Right. Uh, that's right. in the Kelvin. Yeah. That's the universe. Kelvin. That's the Kelvin universe book. Yeah. Uh, I am timeline. I am not currently under contract to write any Star Trek books at all. In fact, I'm, I'm not under contract to write anything. I am sort of in a. 
refractory period while I try to get my head together. Hmm. Would you also say that the publishers trying to get their heads together because of Picard coming? Oh, they got plenty of stuff coming down the pipeline. They just don't need me for it. They got uh, plenty of Picard books. They got two, three of those already in the pipeline. Everybody knows Una McCormick's doing the first one. It's going to be out in hardcover next year. Uh, They got more Discovery books coming. They got TOS books coming. They got my Kelvinverse book coming. They got plenty of books coming. They're, They're rolling ahead. They just haven't seen any real particular need to come back to me. Well, they need a trilogy, an epic trilogy. <laughs> well, so, we, so so we've been telling them, but uh, they have yet to take the bait on that one. Oh, that's okay. that's unfortunate. It's, they don't know a good thing and they've happen. got it. Eh, yeah. Well, we'll see. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. Next time you're on here, all of a sudden, yeah, something. You never Let know. Me just, but you've got other original works going. Well, I've got book three of my uh, Dark Art series will be out next year. June 9 uh, is the Shadow Commission coming from Torbucks. Um, but that series is done. I finished vetting the copy edit on that a week or two ago. Um, there's not going to be any more books in that series unless it gets sold to television, which seems less and less likely with each passing day. So that series is probably dead. Uh, I've got nothing else in the pipeline. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of just, uh, staring at the walls and, uh, trying to think of reasons not to throw myself off bridges lately. So that's where I am right now creatively. Well, I hope that we do get something from you soon, whether it's Star Trek or something else, because well, like I, I said, you'll have, you'll have two books next year. It's just they're, mm-hmm. they're done already. Right. I, I, I have ideas I'm kicking around. I just can't seem to make them work yet. Right. Well, we'll have to uh, implore our listeners to pre-order both of those books, uh, especially the, the, final dark arts book because i've really been enjoying that series so uh, well anything we can do to help both both of them i mean really the one i want to push to people's hands if they're star trek fans is the kelvin verse book um it's been long postponed over a decade at this point i thought it really captured what it was about that particular version of Star Trek and those particular incarnations of the characters that made them fun, that made people enjoy them. Uh, so I figure if people enjoyed the new movies or even just enjoyed one of them, I think they're going to dig this book because it really does feel like, like I, this is not a book that you could just say, file off the serial numbers and put Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly on the cover. It wouldn't work. It is very it is very much a story that is rooted in that universe, that version of track, and those versions of the characters, and it would not work for any other version of those characters. Um, so I think that you know it's it's particularly for those fans who dig those movies. Mm-hmm. And that one's uh, more beautiful than death. And August of next year, correct. Uh, we're definitely going to be looking for that one for sure. Yeah, I really hope people will give that one a chance. It was it was an experiment. Okay. But we're not going to see Erica Hernandez in that one. Probably not. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a fine. That's, that's I, okay. I, I don't think we're ever going to see her in anything ever again, unless somebody does a new Enterprise era book. But mm-hmm. uh, even then, if they want to stay in continuity, they can't use her past, what, 2153, I think? So right. not much fun there. <laughs> Well, we'll have to get you back on next year, though, for the for more beautiful than death. Uh, oh yeah, yes. yeah. I'll be definitely curious to see what you guys think of that. 
Excellent. Absolutely. Really looking forward to that one for sure. Me too. So where can people find you online? Well, they can check out my website, davidmack.pro. That's mac, M-A-C-K dot P-R-O. And from there, there's links to my Facebook page. If you want to check out my Facebook author page, that's facebook.com slash the David Mack. And you can find me on Twitter at David Allen Mack. David Allen, A-L-A-N, Mack, M-A-C-K. Wow, I find it hard to believe we're done. It seemed like, you know, quite a while ago that we started on the path to destiny with all of the Titan and TNG books that kind of lead into it. And just like that, we're done. I, I, it's, I can't, I can hardly believe it. It's kind of sad that we're done. But yeah, it's like when we planned this a year ago, I thought, wow, you know, we've got a year before we even get to these books. And you're right now we're here and we're done. We got to just move on. But, you know, there's other good stuff out there. That's true. There's uh, there's a lot of good books to come uh, and a lot of not great books to come. But that's the thing. There's so many Star Trek novels out there. We will never run out of things to talk about on this show. Yeah, like Spock must die. I'm oh, man, I can point. see it on my shelf right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you've read that one, right? I actually haven't. I I picked it up at some used bookstore some time ago and I've had it for ages, but I have not read it. Oh yeah. We got to do that at some point. I read it like, I don't know, 20 years ago. (laughs) Wow. Something to look forward to. (laughs) I kind of skimmed through it. Not that long ago. For some reason, I remember kind of picking it up and skimming through it, but it's, it's definitely something we got to hit at some point. Hmm. Interesting. All right. (laughs) Well, it's been fun talking about, Spock dying and other people dying in the Destiny trilogy, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed somewhere else on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I bought it I, I, when it first came out. I played it for like two or three days and I went, what is going on? Am I am I missing something? Is is just I'm not a good player, so... And then I checked on the reviews online and everyone agreed that it was not a good game. And we were all correct. Literary Treks. But that's why I bring this back around, why it was so cool, the Klingon battle cruisers, to distinguish them not being the smooth-sided, cheapy little things from the series. Gene gives them this, you know, never is this uttered on screen, but every little tech nerd <laughs> knows what a Katinga, you know, Klingon battle cruiser is. And it's only because... He came up with that gene, came up with that word and gave it to them in the novel. It's not in the movie. You know, nobody mm-hmm. says, Captain, we were right. picking up uh, three Klingon Takinga heavy battle cruisers on the, you know, Epsilon 9. Earl Grey. Come know. on. Like, when you know. go on a date, no. you're going out to dinner and you're, that's like the standard date number one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, Maybe things are different in the 24th Maybe. century. Maybe. <laughs> But okay, all right. I mean, I, I, I but okay. So, 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 I mean, you could be assuming this is the first time they shared breakfast together. <laughs> Maybe. That's, That's a wild question. assumption. Maybe that <laughs> and introducing our newest show, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Mike, I wanted to make a comment about something that you said about uh, being mostly the middle for a lot of these comic book franchises, it actually makes me think Star Trek, in a way, is something that keeps going and going 764 installments now without a specific end necessarily. Maybe it'll come what, someday. What? But These are the Voyages was a, was a love letter <laughs> to the fans. What are you talking about, Justin? 
You know what I mean. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we would love it if you would leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We always love getting feedback, and we would love to hear your thoughts on today's show. There are many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, is on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And you can find us on the Goodreads group where we have a bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows plus great conversations happening about the books and comics. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamotala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So, Dan, when people are telling you that you're just not your old self, you're just acting different, we like the old Dan. Bring the old Dan back. Where can people find you? Well, I mean, life is change. You gotta, you gotta roll with stuff. You know, I refuse to fit inside anybody's box, but, uh, you know, I'm actually pretty reliable. You can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K E R T R A T S. And I'm reliable because I pretty much just talk about Star Trek. Uh, you can also find me on youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, uh, where I also talk about Star Trek, but also recently a bit of Star Wars, which is a change for me. So maybe I am not the same person I used to be. Weird. Uh-huh. Um, you can also, of course, find me on facebook.com slash Productions and on my website at treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And Bruce, when you're not undertaking a grueling hike through Arctic climates uh, south to get off of this island, <laughs> where can we find you? <gasps> you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jacola. Every time a new Star Trek Discovery episode comes out, we're live on YouTube the next day. If it's a short track, it's usually the same night. And you can find me talking Star Wars also, Dan. I talk about Star Wars stuff 
on the Star Wars Report podcast and on some recent episodes of the 602 Club. So check those out. And of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.